welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Welcome to another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. They say Texas is like a whole other country, and that's true. Weather, it'll change on a dime. The economy, where crude and crops can both thrive. And state pride. We can't really explain why we put the shape of our state on just about everything, but we do. So like many around here, Weaver is Texas born and proud. That's why we've got a good pulse on what's happening with the Texas economic and political outlook. Today, I'm sitting down with Adam Jones, strategic governance consultant for Weaver and owner of Capital Jones, a consulting firm. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Shelby. It's great to be here. So what is the Texas Comptroller's economic projection for the next two years? And how is that going to affect the legislature and the legislative agenda this year in 2019? Well, it's slowly improved over the last few months. Uh, we have gone from a time when the controller estimated roughly a zero budget surplus for Texas to a revised projection over the summer of about $2.8 billion surplus. And he had reasonably good news when he put out his biennial revenue estimate at the beginning of the session. It gives the legislature about $8 billion in general revenue to play with over a two-year budget cycle. Uh, The ledge has a pretty good fallback. The Economic Stabilization Fund, which most people just call the Rainy Day Fund, is at a a historic $15 billion level. So there's a little bit of cooling in the Texas economy, but I would call uh, Controller Hager's rough estimate, cautiously optimistic, and and it puts the legislature on pretty good footing. So looking at that economic projection, I mean, how healthy is the Texas economy compared to the rest of the nation? Compared to the rest of the nation, it it just rocks. Um, (laughs) Relative to Texas, it's cooled a little bit, but but it's widely diverse. I, I like to tell people Texas is the only state in the union that can produce citrus fruit and winter wheat in abundance. Mm -hmm. And between those two extremes, there are natural resources, a thriving energy industry, a huge manufacturing sector, service sector, and on and on down the line. So uh, Texas has sort of a LIFO economy, last in, first out. The national recession hits us last, setting aside a, a huge oil shock. And we tend to be the state that emerges first from recession. So when you look at things like uh, employment growth, the most recent Dallas Fed uh, projection shows Texas at 2.4% employment growth. Uh, and that's, that's roughly in line with the rest of the country. Texas sees that as a cooling of our economy, but any other state would not. That That is a healthy foundational economy. And Texas enjoys a lot of diversity that we sometimes take for granted within our own border. Well, one of those drivers of growth you mentioned was the energy sector. And you know, right now, it seems that oil prices are down. So how does that truly affect the rest of the Texas economy? 
it has ripple effects, not the kinds of ripple effects that we've experienced in past years. The spot price of oil is about $54 this morning, the, the last time I checked. That's a reasonable amount, and, and there are almost two energy economies when you talk about upstream and downstream. Oil, at, you can make money in Houston with oil at $54 a barrel. It's harder to make money in exploration, in the Permian Basin, in the Eagleford Shale. But when you look at Texas production and rig count, even at $54 a barrel, it is at historic highs. So the production, the manufacturing, the refining industries are all still pretty healthy. Uh, when Texas experiences things like $80 barrel oil, $100 barrel oil, you're just supersizing the economy. It is growth on top of growth on top of growth, and it, it creates remarkable trickle-down effects. But even in relatively ordinary times, $55 barrel oil certainly keeps the Texas economy afloat, and it certainly keeps the greater Houston Gulf Coast economy afloat. So when we're talking about those fluctuating oil prices, I guess how long a, a time period of healthy but not radical price for oil? Texas has gone about a year with a fairly cool economy based on based just on the price of oil. It's slipped to, you know, close to 40 at times. It's hovered around or above 60 at times, but it's been in that rough range for maybe a year or 18 months. And so within that year to 18 months, what is that direct cause and effect between the oil price and what consumers will see at the pump? It's an interesting question. The last data I saw shows that for the last quarter or so, Texas has had almost historically low CPI growth. So the price index has been low in Texas, and a whole lot of that are low prices at the pumps. I saw low-octane ethanol blend for like $1.58 wow. the last time I was on a trip. I, I did not put that in my car. But <laughs> nevertheless, that's about as low as oil prices have gotten in, in what, a decade? Yeah. Um, so there are, there are downstream benefits to consumers. Uh, overall, that's not a healthy place for the, the state to be, but, but with all economies, you have trade-offs, and sluggish oil prices have certainly benefited consumers. Texas has fairly good wage growth. As in all states, there are some, some income inequalities. A couple of things about the general economy of, of Texas, when you talk about trickle-downs that help consumers, Texas has uh, unemployment rates right around the national average, which are historically low. But Texas has a labor participation rate that's well above the national average. So, you know, economists argue that we're always messing around with the unemployment rate and it doesn't reflect how many people have just quit looking for jobs. And, and there's some arguments there. But in Texas, we have pretty good labor force participation. We have had decent wage growth. So when you, you get down to the typical Texas consumer, they've operated within a pretty good economy over the last, um, the last couple of years. Well, speaking of wage growth, let's talk about job creation in Texas. How does Texas fare in comparison to the rest of the country? 
Texas is the great uh, magnet state. The Dallas Fed calls Texas the stickiest state. So we have more people who come to Texas almost always for employment opportunities and fewer people who leave. So our, our net in migration, both foreign and domestic, are, um, are higher than, than any other region in the country. Not necessarily quarter by quarter, but as an aggregate over the past decade. And a lot of that is job creation. Texas has two job creation engines. One, the Dallas metro area, including Arlington and Irvington. The other, the Austin metro area, including Round Rock and Georgetown and San Marcos, just never stop. And if you look at employment growth in those two metros, it's almost always above 3%, sometimes above 4%. Uh, so, so you have two huge growth engines Fort Worth and San Antonio are not too far behind. When Houston is also producing jobs, the Texas economy is quite the juggernaut because we just add jobs at a clip that other states just can't keep up with. But Texas job creation is kind of the, the envy of the country, and a lot of it centers around burgeoning Dallas and Austin economies most of which, I should note, don't have anything to do with the energy industry. So, so the diversity of Texas is really, really a strength and, and becoming more of one. So you mentioned that a lot of those jobs are not within the energy industry. So Midland, Odessa, and those areas, those aren't the places we're talking about. We're talking about either in Austin, high-tech jobs, or in Dallas, especially uh, Collin County, we've seen a lot of headquarter relocations. So a lot of bachelor degree and up seeking new jobs or seeking, I guess, relocations here, right? That's right. And and Dallas is just a huge corporate center, and Fort Worth is increasingly one. I, I wanted to, to throw out one anecdote. Remember, the the entire country engaged in this giant Amazon sweepstakes mm-hmm. last year. And, yes. and Amazon headquarters and their 50,000 jobs, they decided to, to go the split between Washington, D.C. and the, the New York metro area. You know, there are a couple of stories that got lost in that mix right after Austin lost out on Amazon. And I'm not sure Austin really wanted Amazon in the first place. Apple quietly added 5,000 jobs to the Austin economy. Yes, um, that's right. And those that would be a lead story uh, at any other point in our history. But it sort of takes backseat to the Amazon headquarters. I read in the Austin Business Journal just yesterday that there is a new 20-story skyscraper going up in Austin, multiple hundreds of thousands of square feet of office space. And Google has already rented the entire building. Really? Um, so, the, so the tech economy in Austin drives that. The corporate economy in Dallas drives that. You have a, an incredible manufacturing base in San Antonio that, that sometimes we take for granted, employers like Toyota. Uh, so there are a lot of success stories in and around Texas, separate and in part from our natural resources, which, which give us a tremendous foundational advantage. Right. Well, with all of this job growth and construction to to house either these corporate headquarters or these new buildings going up. But we've heard about a skilled labor worker shortage. 
what kind of effect is that going to have on this Texas job economy that's that's seemingly kind of bursting at the seams? It's going to catch up to us. When you look at the, the Texas education system and workforce development system, it's starting to lag behind demand. So Texas is a magnet for professionals and high-skilled workers. But when you get into what they call uh, mid-skills, not, not sure a term I like because some of those mid-skills are, are highly require high technical competence, Texas lags behind a little bit. Our education system is a mixed bag. We have a very high graduation rate in our high schools paired with a fairly low sort of career and college readiness rate. So, so the metrics by which we measure whether a graduate is prepared to enter the workforce, the military, college, obtain a, a credential, we're lagging in those numbers, even though we're, we're producing voluminous amounts of graduates. Texas is also a high immigration state. Texas is highly diverse. We have a lot of newcomers seeking jobs, and we need them. But that skills gap can become a, a very real thing. I cited Toyota in San Antonio. Toyota has sort of gone outside of the education system and, and move toward more of a grow your own concept where they are produce their own employees. Uh, Texas in, Texas Instruments in Dallas sort of pioneered that same sort of work. So you're seeing corporate America stepping in to the void where they're unsatisfied with either the education or workforce development oh, that's system. that's interesting. And, and Texas needs some, needs some public investment in those areas. Related to that, do you foresee the national argument over border security and changes in the U.S.-Mexico trade agreement? How is that going to affect the Texas economy? In some very unpredictable ways. I know that's not a very helpful answer, right? <laughs> but <laughs> well, what do you mean? Yeah. NAFTA has been a boon to a lot of parts of Texas. It, it has been an economic boon to the Rio Grande Valley, to San Antonio, to Austin, to manufacturing spots along the way. Uh, there are downsides of NAFTA. El Paso had massive job losses in the beginning because you moved manufacturing from one side of the border to the other. But, but Texas has sort of adapted to NAFTA um, and we've, we've really made it a, a thriving component of our economy. They're our biggest trading partner. Uh, and one of the factoids I like to throw out, people don't know, the port of Laredo, a completely land-based port, is the second largest economic port of entry in the United States. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to think of how much Mexico impacts the Texas economy and vice versa. So any discussion of border security, of immigration, anything in the large national discussion around renegotiating trade agreements catches Texas' attention in a hurry. And it's, of course, not just NAFTA. When you talk about trade tensions with places like China, what we subsidize, what we don't subsidize, what is subject to tariff, what is not, 
has ripple effects throughout the Texas economy, whether that is in agriculture, whether that is in finished manufacturing products, machine tools. Public school finance is something that's getting a lot of talk as the legislative session kicks off. So where does Texas rank in education and kind of what does that mean for the long-term health of, of our economy? It's such a hard question to answer because there are multiple Texases. We are far from a homogenous state. I would say the Texas public schools are pretty good, above average when compared to the country. I mentioned earlier about the disconnect between our graduation rate and our career and college readiness rates. Texas has given up some ground in early reading and early math attainment um, among kids in third and fifth grade, and that's that's kind of a worrisome sign. And some of it is we have not really made a lot of state investments in that area over the past few years. I say that, but there's some parts of the Texas public schools that are showing remarkable growth. One of the success stories is the Rio Grande Valley. You know, you, you measure education statistics not in a vacuum, but to accurately do it, you have to compare how subgroups are progressing. What are school districts doing with what they are given? And there's absolutely a correlation between affluence and academic success. There are school districts in the Rio Grande Valley, for example, that have turned that on its head. They are succeeding at great rates with less affluent populations and populations that are sometimes limited English proficient. There are also major urban school districts in Texas that are really struggling to get ahead. School finance plays a role in this. Right. And the, the legislature has shown an interesting consensus so far around the idea of school finance reform and putting a lot more state money in the system. It's an interesting place to be because a lot of people don't remember that the result of the last school finance lawsuit was that the state won. The Supreme Court wrote kind of a snarky and somewhat entertaining opinion about how bad the system actually was, but they didn't find it unconstitutional. Typically, government, particularly the Texas legislature, does not act unless they are under duress. Uh, and this legislature, under Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, Speaker Dennis Bonin, has sort of banded together and is committed to real school finance reform. It, it's the most optimistic outlook for additional funding, for uh, lowering recapture, for property tax relief, for getting rid of some of the uh, anachronistic elements of our school finance system, and there are a lot of them. But it's the most optimistic outlook I've seen in probably a, a decade. And the, the current school finance formulas are about 12 years old. Uh, they, they've tinkered around the margins, but this is a system put in place since about 2007. It's sort of come to a, a tipping point among elected officials, which, which is always first impetus for reform. Going back to uh, what you were saying about the, the Texas education system and the constitutionality of it, are we talking about what's loosely called the Robin Hood plan? Robin Hood is the common term for recapture. 
you have complaints that, that the school finance system doesn't work anymore. The actual problem is it works exceptionally well. It is a balance between state investment and local property tax growth. And when a school district becomes property wealthy and collects taxes above a certain level, we call it the equalized wealth level in Texas, uh, the state of Texas harvests, for lack of a better term, those monies to the benefit of the state, and they're redistributed throughout the system. That's a, that's a fundamental aspect of the equity of the system. It dates back to a, a series of lawsuits called the Edgewood lawsuits, mm-hmm. where Texas started to dis- redistribute resources from property wealthy districts to property poor districts. And if you didn't have recapture, the system would actually collapse you would be left with districts like Highland Park, which is everybody's favorite example, although it's an extreme outlier. But rich rich districts could spend whatever they wanted and poor districts would suffer. And, and Texas has always made a commitment to equity. What has happened over time when Highland Park and Alamo Heights and the Eanes School District in Austin, what we call Westlake, had so much money that they were writing to the checks back to the state, nobody had any sympathy. But as the economy grows and as large, diverse school districts become property wealthy, Plano hit that level very quickly, but Austin followed it. And then Dallas became property wealthy. Houston became a, a recaptured district. So when you have the bulk of of districts collecting property taxes and sending them back to the state while sometimes educating populations that are 70, 80% economically disadvantaged, it starts to trigger some resentment and unease about, is this really the intent of how we design this system? If you foment enough resentment, you tend to get change. And I think uh, we're, we're certainly at a political engagement point where it's time to address school finance because the general public is a little bit frustrated about this system. Something else that has affected Texas greatly, obviously, is Hurricane Harvey and trying to recover uh, both in costs and repairs related to to the damage from that storm. So let's talk about where the state is in rebounding uh, with all of those costs, and and how how long do you expect that to last? Harvey is an incredible storm. From an economic perspective, it is bigger than Ike and Allison but it's bigger than all the previous major hurricanes in Texas combined. And the flooding of Harvey had such far-reaching consequences, it's, it's just hard to think about. All that said, the Texas recovery has gone pretty well. I, I want to go back to something that I, I said earlier about the Dallas Fed describing Texas as the stickiest state. When Katrina hit New Orleans, New Orleans emptied. I was a a state official at the time, and Texas enrolled over 46,000 kids fleeing the Katrina area in in Louisiana into our public schools. A lot of those families stayed. They didn't return to New Orleans. We've seen a very 
different pattern with Harvey. The, the people of Houston have stayed. They have not gone anywhere other than temporarily. In a large part, they are rebuilding. Houston's in the middle of a, of a construction boom, of an employment boom. These are all, all good things. I mean, obviously, they are underlying by a, an immense um, economic and personal tragedy. But Houston is rebuilding. Uh, it's moving on. And when you do the real analysis of Harvey's impact on the energy industry, it, it's sort of a blip. And I don't mean to be glib, but the overall impact to the energy and petrochemical industry has not been all that great. You, you take some things offline for a while, but we've mostly replaced that wealth. We have had a number of federal aid packages around rebuild, around housing. Uh, you have uh, initiatives in the legislature to uh, subsidize through the school finance system losses due to attendance decline and property value decline. So I would say that Texas has rebounded about as, as well as you could expect. Well, Adam, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Shelby. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. Subscribe and tune back in for more Weaver Beyond the Numbers.